We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. I remember when we were young, my parents used to threaten me and my sister with the Emergency Act. No! It was the Riot Act they read to us. Here's God Thompson! Hey, record that while you're riding your bike? Good afternoon, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, great to be here. Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board. Another big day. Oh my goodness, the Emergencies Act. Uh, I told you. I told you it'd get really good. Uh, it started off uh, yesterday with the uh, director of the uh, of the of CESAs saying to us all, "Yeah, we." Uh, I told the prime minister in a private meeting that we didn't really, really well. We didn't reach the legal definition of uh, a threat to national security, but recommended it anyway to clean up the mess. Uh, that's basically has been confirmed even more so today uh, with uh, Mendicino on the stand pretty much all day. And uh, again, did it have to be done after three weeks of dysfunction between uh, the police chief, the police services board, city hall, the mayor of of Ottawa, the prime minister, what have you, uh, you know, OPP, RCMP? Uh, but at the end of the day, this was not called to actually uh, due to a threat of national security. This was called in order to get the uh, uh, the leadership together because the police chief wasn't taking anything from anybody, whether it was intelligence or he didn't even have a plan B, which to me is what policing is. If everybody obeys the law, well, what happens when they don't? So and here we go. Here we go again. And is it CISA's job to say uh, we haven't met the legal definition of the Emergencies Act, but we're recommending it due to the dysfunction of the other of, of leadership? Mendicino saying the police were overwhelmed. So it's it's just again, this isn't about national security. This is about not having a plan. This is about. Uh, antagonizing truckers, 90% of which are vaccinated, by calling them racist and misogynistic. And then when they show up at your front door, you run away. And you push it to the soft shoulders of the mayor of Ottawa, who pushes it to the soft shoulders of, uh, of the police chief and his dysfunctional staff and the dysfunctional police services board. Unbelievable. Why? Because the prime minister started it with poking a fight with the 10% who either were not going to get vaccinated or can't get vaccinated, instead of celebrating 90% that are. Here is uh, Mendicino, uh, Minister Mendicino, uh, talking about how the police were overwhelmed. They were swarmed. There were reports about there being uh, threats made to them as they tried to do their job. And they were clearly identifiable in uniform, um, you know, indicating that it was time to go home. Um, and these were not just interactions. I mean, they ultimately did lead to hundreds of criminal charges being laid, including assault of a peace officer, which is a very serious offense to be charged with. That's what happens when you let it simmer for three weeks. Well, the prime minister runs into a COVID-19 protocol 
and everybody just says, well, it's going to be out of here by the weekend. The totality of the convoy. The consequences were devastating to people, to the economy, uh, to our international relations. And so at, at all times, I was assessing um, not any one of these events in isolation, but rather the situation in its totality. Because you let it get out of control. You laughed at these people when they first came rolling into town with their big 18-wheelers and their four-wheel drives. After the Prime Minister called them misogynistic and racist. Then you all ran away. These people will humiliate themselves. They'll, they'll drive out of town with, the t- uh, with their tail between the legs. It didn't happen. And then when things got ugly... What do we do now? What do we do now? Uh, This is Mendocino on the threats of violence. We were uh, concerned about whether or not the blockade might target uh, the prime minister. And then, as you uh, will have heard by now, there were subsequent many threats that were made towards uh, not only public elected public figures, but equally uh, law enforcement and representative of of the media. Which is, I guess, the answer police chief uh, slowly wanted when, he, you know, uh, he needed more uh, troops and the RCMP were, was sent to guard the prime minister and, and the national monuments and such. So, again, I go back to what I had said weeks ago. This was not about national security. This is about a prime minister who, who picked a fight with a group of people who then showed up on his doorstep and then the prime minister went into COVID-19 protocol. Left it to the mayor, who pushed it onto the soft shoulders of the police department, no support there, highly dysfunctional city hall, highly dysfunctional uh, police services board, highly dysfunctional senior membership in the Ottawa Police Service. Not the rank and file. They're just trying, what the heck do we do now? And now they're all defect, uh, deflecting blame. And how do you get around it? Well, you reword the Emergency Act. Well, either you reach the threshold or you don't. I won't disagree that something needed to be done after three weeks of complete incompetence and dysfunctionality. And I hope they've changed their little group there in Ottawa between the RCMP and the OPP and the Ottawa Police Service. So when this happens again, and it may, at least they have a plan B. How arrogant do you have to be to think these people are all just going to go away because you're saying, get off my front lawn. My goodness. And this is just beginning this week. Wait till the prime minister testifies at the opposite end. Many of you are really into the, the uh, World Cup. You may not be listening. You're, you're watching a sports uh, station of some sort. But no short, uh, nor shortage of controversy, um, not so much on the field, but certainly off the field. And uh, I found it fascinating when we're uh, watching uh, some of the opening ceremonies and such and, and hearing uh, the head of FIFA, 
uh, defending his host and say, calling, actually using the word racism for everybody that uh, had accused, uh, uh, obviously, the host of uh, human rights violations and such. So, uh, you know, the first question is, why go to places like this that create such controversy? I'm sure there's a positive to a negative in the sense it draws attention to. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, why jump into this kettle? Let's bring in Bruce Kidd, Professor Emeritus Sport and Public Policy, University of Toronto, and w- is with us now. Bruce, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thanks, Scott. So what are your thoughts of what you've seen so far, Bruce, not so much on the field, but the politics of it all? Well, it's pretty wild. And uh, usually the politics, which are always part of major games going back as far as as I can remember, but usually they stop with the opening ceremonies. And in Qatar this year for this World Cup, they are ongoing. They're they're tense. They're they're angry. Uh, I think we're in unprecedented times, and uh, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that the the World Cup this time is playing out very differently. So uh, the obvious question: Why would FIFA want to go there? Why you know they 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 they're there? They say to sell the sport and promote the sport and such. So why choose such a controversial host? Well. They didn't go there for the good of sport. They go. They went there because a majority of the voters were bribed uh, in mm. one way or another to place the 2022 games in Qatar. Uh, that those uh, those acts of bribery have led to prosecutions in various countries, but they were they never overturned the decision. Qatar was interested in it for uh, regime branding uh, within the Middle East, where it served as a form of political protection because um, it is at odds with many of the other uh, oil and gas rich states, some of which had threatened invasion. And this international spotlight was a valuable form of protection. Uh, FIFA was interested in, uh, in addition to the personal uh, ad- advantages, uh, placing the games in a, an extremely wealthy country with um, the possibility, as we've subsequently seen, of investments in uh, other uh, levels of soccer, uh, particularly in Europe. So there, there were a lot of non-sporting interests involved. Is this a black eye for FIFA, the beautiful game aside, uh, especially defending the way they did at the beginning? Well, I would I would think so. But um, again and again, uh, you know, corrupt or incompetent international federations have managed to 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 sneak away uh, with more revenue uh, and the ability to fight again another day. I mean, uh, FIFA, FIFA has, has, has caved in to Qatar in the last couple of days in, uh, in, in, in really upsetting ways. But they control this beautiful game. They have a monopoly on this game uh, at the highest level the world o- over. And um, I don't see any possibility of their their losing that it may well be that the leadership uh is overturned in a subsequent election 
or there are members that are again arrested or challenged in legal ways, but FIFA itself will continue. And I wish there was an alternative, but I don't see one. Uh, you talked about how uh, there's always the, or whether it's Olympics or what have you, there's lots of controversy before it starts. Then once the games uh, continue, uh, our thoughts move to the sport. Not happening this time. Armband issues, what have you. What are your thoughts on what's coming off the pitch and what is resonating? Well, the, I'm not sure what you mean by that question. It is it is being covered uh you know, the politics did continue in other games, but the media focused entirely on the sport. Now the world media continues to cover the armband issue, the anthem issue. Uh, I just read a case of a, of, a, of a young Brazilian who carried his state flag into the stadium yesterday. It's a state, it's a flag with uh, three rainbow colors, not seven uh, in the LGBT plus flag. And he was seized. Uh, his phone was uh, seized from him. All of the images uh, were removed. His flag was was confiscated. So um, it's it's ongoing, and I don't know what's going to happen next. So should this these uh, this tournament have happened, or is this good exposure for the rest of the world to see what's going on? You know, that's a great. That, that's a great question. I don't think there's an easy answer to this. Uh, people like me say that sport is constituted by politics and the economic process. And, and too often, uh, people only look at the sport and they don't ask questions about the way that it's constituted. Now that's apparent for everyone in the world uh, in a messy way, uh, in, a, in a, an uncertain way, because people around the world bring very different lenses to to what is happening. But I think that uh, although there are as, as many questions as there are people asking them, the fact that we are seeing uh, international sport um, in all of its dimensions uh, in, a, in a much more revealing way, in a much more ex- exposing way, I think overall that's a good thing. And, and hopefully Kitt. that will lead to more questions being asked about the staging of, of, of major games and even sports in our own country. And that's been growing. This never would have happened in 2014 in Sochi, where uh, the issue of gay suppression was, was v- very uh, much in play. It certainly wouldn't have happened in 2008 in Beijing, where athletes were told to shut up or go home, and and the media were censored. Now, uh, these questions are still being uh, answered, and people are speaking out. And I think overall, that's a good thing. Bruce Kidd, Professor Emeritus, Sport and Public Policy, University of Toronto on the World Cup. Bruce, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, you know, there's been lots of debate over the, about the CBC over the years. Um, you, you know, I, I, I'm in the media, so I watch everything. Uh, I try to watch a bit of everything as much as, as I can. Um, the CBC, I, I, to me, I always thought was sort of left of center, but I'm not sure that CTV, the other main network, hasn't 
isn't jumping on that for a piece of the pie uh, as well. Uh, but obviously, we've known over the years, especially with uh, the explosion of social media and the Internet and, and other forms of media, that traditional media has taken a hit and has shrunk as a result of this. Uh, and we have had the discussion over the years about the funding that goes towards CBC and uh, sort of the the Cadillac of broadcasters, as they say, when it comes to facilities and staffing and so on and so forth. And many have, have called for uh, some sort of uh, defunding of the CBC, uh, whether it's less money, less this, less that, what have you. Um, but now the, uh, the subject is coming up again. Uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation have written an article on this and argues that maybe now is the time to re-examine, uh, well, to fund, as they say, uh, the CBC. Let's bring in Chris Sims, Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and with us now. Chris, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great. Thanks for having us. So, Chris, let me start with this angle, playing devil's advocate here. Because traditional media and private media has shrunk so much because of the changing landscape, Is does this not mean, uh, mean that there's more of a need for something like the CBC? No, uh, and I know you're playing devil's advocate. I do appreciate that. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I worked as a journalist for most of my adult life, a uh, better part of 20 years. That includes being a longtime member of the Parliamentary Press Gallery and even a short stint for a couple of months inside the CBC building. So uh, I, I know. Wow, what was that like? What was that like? And how did you get in there and back over the wall? <laughs> I know, right? Um, And that's why I laughed when I wrote in the piece, uh, the scuttlebutt for those of us who spent most of our lives as ink-stained wretches in private media, is that for every one person on private media, there's about four managers at CBC. And I saw it with my own eyeballs. Absolutely true. Um, And so our position at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is that the state should not pay for journalists. Period. So the CBC is the biggest defender when it comes to the government funding reporters. It just shouldn't happen. Number one, it is a clear conflict of interest. You are literally questioning the people who can either fund you or not on Parliament Hill. Number two, we can't afford it. We're more than a trillion dollars in debt, and we hand out about $1.2 billion per year to the CBC. To give you an idea of what kind of money that is, that could pay for the full-time salaries of really skilled registered nurses, 13,000 of them a year. That is all of the income tax paid by every man, woman, and child in Pickering, Ontario. So we're talking serious money here that goes down the drain every year at CBC, and we just frankly can't afford it. You're right when you called it the Cadillac, uh, but unfortunately that thing doesn't start most of the days. Uh, So is this a result of the changing media landscape or inflation and the fact that Canadians are just having a tough time time getting by? Uh, We just don't have the money for it. You know, something uh, as described as the CBC could sound nice on paper, If you've got a surplus, sure, we could have that argument then. We have definitely got the opposite of a surplus. Uh, We have got a massive, massive debt. And with interest rates going up, our interest on that debt is going up too. So people just frankly can't afford it. I don't know about you guys there in the the switch room there, in the newsroom too, at the radio station. But the CTF, uh, the, the phone calls and emails from people who are working, these are working people who can't afford basics now, 
is just off the hook. I it's hard to hear. Um, I'm here in Alberta. Uh, they have got record demand from working people for food banks now. Record demand. And when I was at talk radio up at CFRA in Ottawa for many years, uh, I remember when the Ontario uh, Hydro went through the roof and people couldn't afford to heat their homes and have lights on. Um, it sounds a lot like that again. And so, you know what? CBC has way outgrown its mandate. They blow so much money on their middle management uh, and bonuses and pay hikes, which they gave themselves during COVID, by the way, um, that normal people, if you take a look at their books, normal people don't sit for this. They've got about 100, I think the last I checked, 147 uh, of directors. 147. Is Each this, of them are pulling in north of 130000 a year. Uh, again, Chris, there's, uh, this has been a debate for years. Yeah. Obviously, it's different now, post-pandemic, inflation, uh, what it is. But is this resonating with the public? If you did this, would half the population revolt? No, they wouldn't. Because actually, if you take a look at their ratings, they're in the toilet. Uh, Black Locks Reporter, I'm sure you follow them online. They are an independent investigative news journalism, journalism site. Tons of experience there. They don't take money from the government, to be clear. They're independently funded. You have to subscribe to them. Uh, they took a look at it. Their six, the CBC's six o'clock supper hour news ratings across the country got just over 300,000 people watching. That is less than 1% of Canadians watching the supper hour news on the cbc so uh just, sorry go ahead finish there. your thought um yeah, it's so not there and to be clear and like even to give you an example of the whole one to four thing that a lot of us in in private media where i used to work understand with the cbc um remember when they replaced peter mansbridge and they replaced yeah. him with four people we don't even yeah. know what they're paid we're paid we pay their salary but they won't tell us what it is they didn't uh, even tell us what Peter Mansbridge was. Obviously, uh, you know, media has changed. The landscape has changed yeah. over the last several years. We're all working with less. Has yeah. has the CBC changed at all? Have they altered their stance because of this? Have they adapted the way the rest of us have had to? No, not from the looks of it. They keep coming back, by the way, cap in hand, for more money every single time to the government. Every year, without fail, they come cap in hand back to the government, even though we give them one billion dollars a year they still keep coming back for more because they need help here they need help there to give you an idea too because i can hear people now and trust me i you know i'm a child of the late 70s early 80s i grew up on peter zoski i understand the appeal old-fashioned ways of uh the old version of cbc radio fine um that's not there anymore that no longer exists Mm. the way that they actually did their journalism then and the money that they spend just on the executive managers, we're talking, you know, people call it C-suite. They spent more on their pay and salary and bonuses than they do on Indigenous language programming. Period. Like, the numbers are, are bad, and they're really top-heavy, and we just can't afford them anymore. Chris Sims with us, Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, arguing it is time to defund the CBC. Chris, uh, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
All right. Uh, we talked about this yesterday, and you saw the video, I'm sure, on social media or, or your newscasts or such, especially that one where it went whipping by the CN Tower. I'm thinking, holy smokes, how close was that? Uh, and that being a, uh, a meteor that uh, took off across the sky, and uh, really, we knew it was coming, or I didn't, but they did, and, and such, and it came down somewhere in southern, southwestern Ontario, southern Ontario, the Niagara region, uh, perhaps uh, one of the suggestions it went into Lake Ontario, but these things, as our expert said yesterday, have a tendency to come apart on the way down. So you might have something pretty interesting in your backyard or your back 40 that you don't even know about. Let's bring in Dr. Kim Tate, mineralogy, meteorite, and gem curator, Royal Ontario Museum, and is with us now. Kim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. How are you? This is great. I love looking up at the sky and 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 watching what's going up uh, on up there. And then every so often something comes down. What do, what do you want people to look for here? Yeah. So um, obviously there was an event in the middle of the night, so at three thirty a.m. that went right across, uh, as you said, right downtown Toronto and all the way through to the Hamilton area. What we're looking for are rocks on the ground that look a little different than the rocks that you normally see. What we would expect is a black fusion crust or a black glassy surface on the outside. So um, when they're coming through the atmosphere, they burn up, they go white hot, and that's what we see in the sky. And uh, that white hot just burns and just melts the outside of the rock, makes it really glassy black. So that's what we're looking for. And could these be any size? Yeah, so the this uh, what they expect is there's going to be sizes from like pea size all the way up to sort of like a baseball size. There's going to be quite a range of material to look for. So everybody's going to have to keep their eyes out. And, you know, maybe when they're walking the dog or out for a nice walk in the sunny day like today, then maybe they'll find something for us. Uh, I'm sure this que- uh, is a dumb question, but is there a chance that if you find one, you might find more than one, they could be grouped together? Absolutely. I don't think that's a dumb question at all. Yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, no, they, um, as they come in, they uh, do break apart. And, and so it just sort of depends of where they broke apart. If they broke up 25 kilometers above, we expect them to be further apart. But if they broke up a little closer to the surface, then, they, yeah, they could be close together. So you will know if you, if you spot one just because it looks so different from the other rocks in the area? Yeah, that's right. So um, we have an email set up. So it's naturalhistory at rom.on.ca. If anybody wants to uh, send us images of the material that they're finding, we'd be happy to look at it. But yes, we've looked at thousands and thousands of space rocks and earth rocks, and uh, we're very familiar with the telltale signs. And we'd be happy to, uh, to walk you through what we see and what we don't see. Now, are there is is there any specific area? I know it's a Niagara region, but is is it specific to that? Uh, are there certain areas that you know there must be something there? Yeah, the, what they predict. Just this is from the trajectory of how it came in, and like you mentioned, they were able to witness it from way out in space all the way down, and uh, the European Space Agency were the first to pick it up of all all places. So, um, yeah, we expect uh, the fall area is right along the lakeshore, which, of course, means that it could have gone into the lake. Let's hope not. Um, But, yeah, it's all the way from sort of the Grimsby area out to the Welland area along the shoreline there. Now, is there anything you should do regarding handling them? Does it matter? Doesn't matter. You know, ideally, uh, you wouldn't touch them with your hands. You would use gloves and put them into a bag. But honestly, um, you know, it's been out in the the 
elements now. We had a good snowfall and everything, so it's okay. You could probably just pick them up and uh, take them home at this point. So why are these important? What do you learn from them? Well, so these rocks are from the beginning of our solar system. They, you know, they're 4.5 billion years old, and uh, they come to us for free, which is really exciting. We've had the Apollo missions. We've had, you know, the cost millions and millions of dollars to bring back material. But we have this process that actually just brings the material straight to us, which is really exciting. And, you know, every rock from space tells us a little bit more about not only our solar system, but you know, our own planet and how it got here. So, uh, so we have, uh, it's really exciting. Yeah. Does the public often bring you things like this that they found? A lot. Really? <laughs> lots of inquiries about, yeah, so uh, we have a very strong mining uh, history here in Ontario, and so a lot of material called mining slag gets all over Ontario. I don't know why it got to your garden or why it's there, but it gets everywhere. And so uh, slag, mining slag looks a lot like meteorites, black, magnetic, has a lot of the same properties, but uh, usually doesn't have the smooth surface that we're looking for. So we do get a lot of inquiries, um, which is great. I'm, you know, I'm excited that people are thinking about space and looking at rocks. That makes me excited. So I'm happy to, uh, to always interact with people in that way. Does it ever surprise you that whenever stuff like this happens, how it captures the attention of the public? I think it's great. So, yeah. you know, how I actually found out about it was from the Oakville Mummies group on Facebook. <laughs> and, you know, I woke up in the morning and people were, why was my dog barking at 3.30 in the morning? And did you guys hear thunder? And, you know, like there was a bunch of questions along that line. And uh, yeah, so I, when I read that, I'm like, I bet I know what happened. <laughs> so I uh, contacted my colleagues and yeah, sure enough, there was, uh, was an event through the night. And, uh, and then as the day progressed, we got to see all the really exciting videos of people that captured it either on a ring doorbell or, you know, uh, going past the CN Tower, all those uh, events are really exciting. And it gets people just, you know, thinking about space and, you know, sort of our, our you know, protection. We have an excellent atmosphere that keeps us safe from most of these things. But every once in a while, one will sink through and uh, produce rocks on the surface of the Earth, which is really exciting for scientists like me. Dr. Kim Tate, mineralogist, a meteorite and gem curator at the Royal Ontario Museum. And you can find out more about all of this at the ROM. Kim, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. We were talking to uh, Phil Gursky, former uh, CSIS analyst yesterday, about the testimony of the CSIS director, David Vigneault, uh, basically saying that he had a meeting with the prime minister, uh, saying that the legal definition, uh, you have not met the threshold of the legal definition of a threat to national security, but however recommended recommended using the Emergencies Act to the prime minister, which... Many are questioning whether that is is the role of the head of CSIS, uh, as well as um, <laughs> uh, do you change this in mid-flight? Uh, in other words, so it wasn't called to uh, help uh, save us from a national security threat. It was called to clean up the mess after lots of dysfunctionality within the leadership of the Ottawa Police Service, the Police Services Board, and the City of Ottawa. To talk more about all of this, Carson Jarema is with us, comment editor with the National Post, the latest Canada where traffic violations bring the country to the brink of collapse. Carson, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me.
What are your thoughts that uh, the CSIS director said, although they hadn't met the threshold of declaring the Emergencies Act, he recommended it anyway? Is Am I accurate in saying it wasn't needed for national security, but used to clean up the mess? You know, it's hard, it's hard to say what the reasoning was here. So he, I was just reviewing the, the transcript before I came on, and he said that what they were seeing based on the CSIS Act, that it did not there was no threat to national security as defined in the CSIS Act. Now, in order to invoke the Emergencies Act, there must be a threat to national security uh, for a public order emergency to be declared based on what the definition is in the CSIS Act. So he basically, uh, so Vignot said that, or said for the purposes of the CSIS Act, for the purposes of CSIS investigating, we did not, there was not this threat, but the Emergencies Act has a broader definition, may include broader things. And so he said that, that I think the word he uses, the Emergency Act would be required to deal with the totality of everything he's seen. Now to clean up the mess, I, I don't I don't know. I think they were just, in, I think from the testimony that he gave and testimony that others have gave, it's the suggestion is that they are including other things as threats. They're including economic threats. They're, you know, threats, potential threats that could arise. Um, I, I, it's hard to, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily clear what they mean. They just, they're just having a broader view of what counts as a threat to the security of Canada. And they're making the case, they're trying to make the case that the CSIS, that the Emergencies Act allows for that broader definition. Lawyers are, there are some lawyers who, who agree with that, but the most lawyers that I've spoken to and most lawyers that I've seen talk about this think that that's an inaccurate assessment, that the, the standard was not met and therefore the emergencies act declaration was illegal um you can't just change the definition or try and say that the emergencies act has a broader um understanding of national security than the ceases act because it's the same definition um you know the other day jody thomas the national security advisor for for uh, the prime minister said that there are other definitions of national security sure but those things don't have a bearing on how those legislation is to be used or the legislation in question maybe legislation in question is out of date maybe it's essentially useless as written but that's the point is that's the legislation as is and everybody said nope the government did not meet this threshold threshold based on this definition but we're going to say that they should use the this act anyway and i'm not i'm not sure that I'm not, i don't really understand why uh, and that is after three weeks, which started uh, something that didn't need a plan for. It was going to be gone by the weekend. And then three weeks of, of building and building and building and festering and such. Uh, it seems obvious now whether, and I guess you can debate it with lawyers, whether the threshold was met. But are we focusing enough on how the heck did we get this far? In your article, you're talking about parking tickets when these people first arrived. Nobody did anything. I mean, everybody just thought they would walk, uh, they'd drive out of town at the end of the weekend with their tail b- between their legs humiliated. Uh, will, will we focus on how and, and the mistakes that were made to get it to this point where it needed to be called? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that it was need to be called, but I will say how we got to the point where, where politicians... And, and I'm not convinced very- either. I'm, I'm not convinced either, Carson, but it seems that there's a lot of buck passing going on. Like, gee, you got Absolutely. to this point and now we had to do it. Well, you got it to this point in the first place. So I think I, I think that from, you know, my understanding is that the Canadian police, municipal police, city police are very good at responding to an event. We're having a protest, one day protest on a Saturday, 
we can respond to that. We can deal with that. We know what's going on. We've done this before. We can handle it. There's a there's a small riot. We can handle that. That's an incident that happens. Um, the 2014, there was the shooting um, on Parliament Hill, uh, and police responded to that very well. There was an incident that was happened. They went. Anything that seems to require, and this is a, a thought from, um, I, I want to give credit to the King, uh, Queen's University professor, Christian Lubrak, um, when I, I interviewed him about this a couple of weeks ago, the, the the challenge with Canadian police is there does not seem the ability to plan. Like yeah. the, the, so the, especially municipal police. Now the police that are capable of planning would be like the, for this sort of like larger event, bigger, more security, handling larger security would be the Ontario Provincial Police or the RCMP. But based on the police, but based on what the police agreements are within Ontario, there's not like there's not a clean, oh, well, the OPP can just step in and do this. It's if the Ottawa Police Services is not equipped to handle something, well, then it's not they are still the ones in charge. And it's hard to kind of figure out who will be responsible. And of course, as as the a lot of the testimony came out, um, there was a lot of like um, uh, finger pointing, right? Different different police forces, different police services, different police leaders were saying, well, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have the plan. They wanted 1,800 men, but they didn't tell us what they wanted to use it for. Well, we don't want yeah. to give you men. You don't know what you want. Well, we need the men. And then there's a, there's a phone call with Trudeau and Ford. And Ford, uh, Trudeau goes, look, we're responsible for tunnels and bridges. So we can give you that. We can help you with that. But the municipal road, that's Windsor Police who's responsible. So how do we get that? And then Rob Ford says, or sorry, Doug Ford, man, slip. Doug Ford says, well, Windsor Police has to ask the OPP. I can't order the OPP into help. Well, then what do we do? I don't know. Everybody just doesn't but know. But here's the other thing. Here's the other thing, too, Carson. Whenever this intelligence or information was provided to Slowly, he didn't want it. And there was like some sort of headbutting there, and, and none of them seemed to have a plan B. Uh, and then when it, a plan B was needed, then who drives the bus? What I found fascinating was the day after the Emergency Act is called, then Slowly uh, resigns. So, in other words, he's pulled out, and then the Emergency Act takes over. So, to me, this was. Uh, the emergency act was called in order to get some sort of central leadership because the police chief of Ottawa was failing to uh, attract the uh, uh, to investigate the intelligence or even have a plan B. That got him out of the way, and then it was solved. Thoughts? I do think that there is a leadership problem, and I do think that is that is one that is one um, suggestion that even if it didn't meet the legal yeah. threshold, then perhaps it was useful in forcing all the police forces under one sort of yeah. organizational structure um i mean that is certainly something that our ontario is going to have to look at if they want to like prevent this sort like you know what happened what would have happened if a hundred thousand people showed up mostly peaceful but what if it was that hundred thousand people there's a thousand people who wanted to cause trouble like how do you deal with that like you get that in yeah. other cities in other cities around the world you just have more competent police right but so ontario's gonna have to figure that out but i think that was certainly what made it useful, but I, I'm, 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 I guess the, there's a questions I'd like to ask. Um, so quickly, the, the RC, sorry, did you want to? No, no, we uh, just got RC, running out of time. So quickly, make your point. Yeah, the the, the 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 bridge the bridge blockade was clear before the emergency dock was was uh, was invoked, um, and then those resources were sent back to Ottawa, and they cleared out the Ottawa the Ottawa demonstrators. Um, between those times, the Emergencies Act was invoked. So it's easy to say the Emergencies Act was invoked, then Ottawa was cleared away. I'm not convinced. I haven't seen anything that convinces me that it wouldn't have been cleared away anyway. 
Carson Jarema with us, uh, editor, uh, comment editor, National Post. You can read the article, Canada, where traffic violations bring the country to the brink of collapse. Great column, Carson. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world over and above everything that's grabbing our attention, whether it's inflation, uh, whether it's uh, the fallout of a global pandemic, uh, all of that sort of stuff. And one of those issues is crime is way up, unfortunately, when society is in a place where it is. Uh, specifically, auto theft is just rampant around southern Ontario. And in a press release from the Ontario government, uh, they are providing the Hamilton Police Service uh, with uh, over $1.6 million to help find, uh, fight crime, including auto theft. To talk more about all of this, Donna Skelly with us, Flamborough Glanbrook MPP, and here now. Donna, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I just stepped out of the legislature to chat with you. Well, that's great. Say hi to everybody in yeah, there for us. I shall. <laughs> so, uh, Getting pretty heated, were- so I will. Yeah, exactly. Time for a bit of a break. Uh, so anyway, uh, my kids were mentioning this uh, in the last week or so. Hey, you know, Hamilton's like one of the you know worst places for car theft. Blah, 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 blah. And on further review, uh, well, lots of southern Ontario is, but Hamilton's certainly getting its uh, fair share. Talk about what this money is for and, and how it will help. Well, the government is, is giving Hamilton Police Service uh, just over $1.6 million to enhance what we call the automated license plate recognition technologies. So a police officer, uh, perhaps following a car, can run the, the license plate and find out if it's registered, find out if it's stolen. And, of course, if it's stolen, um, they can uh, stop the vehicle and, and uh, if, if need be, arrest the driver. But we've seen an increase in car thefts, as you said, not just in Hamilton, but certainly right across the GTHA. Uh, I'm at Queen's Park today, and, and we've, I think it's up 50% in the city of Toronto. But these, a lot of these um, thefts are also becoming very violent. And, of course, within the last two months, one of the most horrific incidents involved uh, the shooting of a civilian and fatal shooting of a police officer, and, and the mm. suspect escaped in a stolen Jeep that was eventually, uh, it stopped and, and the suspect was um, fatally uh, shot by Hamilton police. But, I mean, this is the type of, of technology that we are arming police services across Ontario so that they can do their job better and keep our, our communities safer. So is this, uh, tell us exactly how this works. So it's, it's on the uh, dash of the car, and as they're driving along, it's just scanning plates. Is that accurate? That's pretty much how it works, and then yeah. they can read, the, the police officer can read uh, the information on their own um, laptop within the vehicle. I don't know if you've ever done a ride-along. It's really worth doing if you haven't. Oh, yeah. It's quite an, it's quite an eye-opener, and, and, of course, uh, the last time I did a ride-along, they didn't have this type of technology. It required uh, the police officer actually inputting the license plate information mm-hmm. to track whether or not the vehicle was stolen. But this is just an easier uh, and, and much more rapid methodology involved. They can, they can check and identify immediately whether the vehicle is stolen. And, and if there's any sort of uh, suspicious activity, they can check it immediately and, and then um, act accordingly. You were but talking about doing. Want- oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. The other thing I wanted to mention is, um, as you know, we eliminated the um, need to go out and, and 
buy a sticker to renew your license mm-hmm. plate. So that meant that a lot of police were unable to determine whether or not a vehicle had, was, was not registered or, or wasn't up to date. Mm-hmm. This is why this technology is so important. But it, this is also a reminder, and I just wanted to mention to your listeners that if you haven't renewed your license, I don't know, Scott, yeah. if you've gone through it yet. Yeah, I've been through it, yeah. Very, it's very, 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 very simple. It's very yeah. easy to do. It takes, uh, I'm, my birthday was in October. It took me less than two minutes to register my vehicle um, on the Ontario, Service Ontario website. And it just says, register your, your vehicle. And you click on it and you follow through. You can register your vehicle. You can uh, ask for uh, updates if you're going to be, well, for next year, to reminders that you need to register your vehicle or if your health card is out of date. All of that can be done very easily. So for anybody who hasn't, please go online and register your vehicle because you could be stopped by police. Yeah, you just because you don't pay for the sticker, you still have to register your vehicle every year. I did that. Also, my license expired while I was uh, during the pandemic. Did that and my health cards, and it was very, very quick. I must, uh, I mm-hmm. must say, and I was a little concerned with all the passport stuff. But anyway, no, this was very quick. Um, you were talking about doing a ride along. I-, I remember doing one, and it, it was sort of funny because people say, you know, the cops are doing this, or they've got a trap here. They could continually be giving out tickets every single second of every day. It's just they would not get off their feet they'd be constantly doing it so with this sort of information i'm thinking almost every other car you're going to get behind it's going to shoot a red flag yeah it could it certainly could but i think really what they're they're using it for and really the the intent is to track stolen vehicles stolen cars yeah and it is it really is becoming an epidemic but as i said the level of violence is also escalating and that is terrifying that is very, very concerning. And so, again, just another opportunity for police to um, to update their technology. They need it, and uh, it just gives them another means of keeping us safe. What other services are using this? Uh, at this point, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, are you talking about what other uh, police services across the province? Yes, yeah. I think most of them have it, and this is just another way of updating it. It's it's um, certainly being used right across the GTHA, but auto theft is, is not just isolated to this part of Ontario. It, it's right across Ontario, and so uh, a number of, of municipalities have adopted this form of technology for municipal police forces, and I'm sure that the OPPR as well. Donna Skelly with us, Flamborough, Glambrook, MPP, talking about money for the automated license plate recognition system for Hamilton Police Service trying to get a curb on car theft. Donna, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And don't forget to renew your license plate sticker. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked over the last couple of days about the situation. Uh, there was a dressing down of the Prime Minister from uh, President Xi of China in public. We remember seeing the video of that. Um, apparently, the Prime Minister bringing up interests of Canada to China, specifically around interfering in elections. Uh, now we're hearing more information. Global Sam Cooper and, and CSIS have, have uh, provided information that uh, could be up to a dozen candidates that actually received funding uh, from uh, these uh, 
I guess, uh, bad actors that are interfering through the Chinese Communist Party in elections in Canada. Um, now the Prime Minister is saying he was not aware of that information. Are we splitting hairs about the actual information? Uh, what is happening here as more questions are raised than uh, being answered? Charles Burton with a senior fellow, Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. And with us now, Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. It's good to speak with you again, uh, Scott. So Sam Cooper, a global broke this stuff. He's all over this uh, kind of thing. We've talked to him several times. How do we square all of this when um, we certainly saw the the public undressing of the of the prime minister by Xi uh, in regard to leaked information and such? Are these two separate issues? Um, did the prime minister know that there was suspected interference from China in Canadian elections? Well, he says that uh, he wasn't aware of this CSIS report that uh, Sam has um, has uh, brought to light. Um, you know, CSIS and uh, uh, evidently sent this to the Prime Minister's office in January of this year. So it's been a good long time. Um, you know, I, I'm confident that Sam's reporting is uh, accurate. I, I wrote the introduction to his most recent book, so... You know, I have a lot of faith in this in this journalist. So the question is, if the report was sent up by CSIS to the prime minister's office, uh, how is it that it wasn't referred to the prime minister, number one? And uh, if, you know, assuming that Mr. Trudeau is being forthcoming, maybe if you, you know, parse his words very carefully, it becomes like one of those things before... Um, uh, uh, Jody Wilson Raybalt was uh, mm. was uh, removed. Who knows? But anyway, you know, politicians are politicians. But in any event, if the information came to light, why is it that the RCMP is not engaged in any investigation that we know about uh, of those candidates who violated um, our election law and uh, received money from a foreign source? And if they knowingly received money from a foreign source, that's a very serious uh, violation of the law. And in addition, you know, Sam uh, reports from the CSIS report that there are 13 staffers um, in uh, electoral and parliamentary offices, which are actually agents for China. Well, you know, this is pretty explosive stuff. And, you know, they've only reported on on the uh, funding and interference, which evidently, according to the reports, comes out of the Chinese consul general in Toronto. What about the embassy and the consulates in Toronto? Uh, I'm sorry, in Vancouver, Calgary, and Montreal. I mean, one assumes that that this might have been going on for quite a few more than that number of candidates. Did it make a, a difference to the election? And how are we going to prevent it from happening again in the next election? You know, there are just so many huge issues here. It will be taken up by the House of Commons Procedures and House Affairs Committee. Um, they, they've ordered a number of hearings and called back a lot of um, the senior Canadian officials in in various departments who had previously testified about um, election interference in 2019, saying essentially uh, nothing, um, you know, nothing to see here. Please keep moving along uh, about why they didn't talk about this. So, you know, I think the truth is going to come out. But leaving aside the whole partisan matter and and whether, um, you know, there's been some screw ups in the reporting in the prime minister's office or 
or you know, if there was some decision not to act on it, this is serious, serious threat to our democracy. And regardless of which political parties um, enjoyed the benefit of China's support, we need to uh, to address this seriously. Um, you know, bring those who are responsible for the funneling of the Chinese funds to candidates illegally to account in court, and I think declare persona non grata those members of Chinese embassy and consulates who are um, coordinating this uh, outrageous activity. You know, just just a lot of things there, and one doesn't understand why um, we haven't seen any movement on it. So um, if uh, he didn't know anything about it, the prime minister didn't know anything about it, what was she referring to? What were they talking about? It was about interference, was it not? Yeah, that's what the prime minister says. Of course, they've been... You know, China interferes in a lot of ways, um, right. such as uh, providing. So know, let me split this jobs. down. So let me split this down, Charles. So maybe he talked about interference, but he didn't specifically talk about these candidates. Is could it be that? Yeah, I mean, it could be yeah. also. You know, the well-documented Chinese disinformation campaign in the 2021 election, which you know resulted in a lot of candidates uh, losing support and possibly losing their seats. It seems, you know, I think Garen O'Toole said he thought about nine conservative candidates were negatively impacted by uh, Chinese systematic disinformation or other uh, Chinese interference in Canada, such as the illegal police stations operating um, in Toronto and I think other places in Canada, harassment of people in Canada, particularly those of Tibetan and Uyghur origin. I mean, there are lots of things. There are lots of things that the prime minister could complain about aside from the 2019 election stuff. And, uh, you know, he says that he didn't know about it. Therefore, he couldn't have raised it with the Chinese president. Um, you know the investigation will will be ongoing, and we'll hear what uh, people around the prime minister have to say. And you know, hopefully, we'll get to the bottom of this. I think you hope that the officials involved will be forthcoming and honest about something that's so serious for our democracy as foreign interference influencing the results of a Canadian democratic election. And uh, we only should a few see seconds those staffers left. fired. Uh, Charles, does this support one party more than the other? Does this, does this favor the Liberals? Perhaps that's why it's not drawing their attention. Well, I mean, that would be a reasonable assumption. They, the claim is that the candidates are both from both parties. But, you know, the Conservative Party's um, policy on China has been much harder line. And, yeah. and there are more Conservatives that are harder line on China than Liberals. So one would assume that it's mostly about Conservative candidates. But, you know, as I say, we'll see when the, when the truth comes to light, as I hope it will soon. Charles Burton with the Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Chinese Interference in Canadian Elections. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, the Emergency Act inquiry is continuing in its last week this week. Some of the heavy hitters uh, coming up this week, including the Prime Minister at the very end of uh, the week and such, uh, obviously heard from the head of CSIS, who said that although the threshold wasn't met legally to uh, as a threat for national security in declaring the Emergency Act, he did recommend it. To clean up the mess, I guess, afterwards, uh, let's get an update on what's been happening today, including one lawyer getting chucked and then ending up back in the courtroom. Kyle Benning is with us, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News and here now. Kyle, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. I hope you are as well. 
Thanks so much. Uh, before we get to the testimony, let's talk about the lawyer situation. There's been some chatter amongst several lawyers. There was an issue, uh, a report on this in the Canadian press a little earlier on, that some are upset, uh, not necessarily because stuff is redacted, but by the time they get this information, uh, some of it coming in at mud- midnight for the next day. Uh, what is the reasoning and, and what happened with the uh, with the conflict between uh, the, uh, the judge and, uh, and, of course, the lawyer? It's interesting, Scott. So uh, this is the lawyer who represents some of the uh, convoy organizers in Ottawa. His name is Brendan Miller. He's uh, been very vocal throughout these last six weeks now, five weeks going on six weeks. Um, he really was upset with not necessarily the the things coming in late from the federal government, but more so about motions that he had made in the commission to try and move things forward in his direction. So one of the motions that he had made was to have a, an additional witness, which would be Justin Trudeau's um, uh, head of communications come and testify as a witness because some of his other members of his staff are are coming in on Thursday and expected to testify. So he was looking for Alex Cohen to be part of that, and that ruling hasn't quite come down yet. And also um, looking for some of the government material that has been coming in to be unredacted in terms of getting closer eyes and, and a little more information so he can sort of make his appeal to things that don't he doesn't feel need to be redacted but are redacted under cabinet sort of protocols and, and safety around there. So um, he sort of it appeared lost his temper and was speaking over the commissioner. The commissioner wasn't really having any of it leading into the lunch break and booted him out and, and said uh, it's sort of not really, uh, I guess, a polite way of dealing in these kind of things. But um, Brendan Miller was reapplied to re-enter the commission and, and came in later this afternoon. So very uh, uh, sort of tensions ramping up as we head into the end of this uh, inquiry. I remember watching this earlier today before the show uh, when they were just about to break for lunch and then uh, somebody spoke up and said, by the way, can you consider over the lunch hour allowing him to come back, Brendan Miller, because he does represent a lot of the people here. Uh, he did say something along the lines of uh, there's lots of representation, but he would consider it. What happened over the course of lunch hour? How did he get back in? So one thing the commissioner did say after that lawyer made that request was if there was a written submission, he would consider allowing Brendan back in. Obviously, that written submission came in over the lunch hour and Mr. Miller was allowed back in. So I don't necessarily I think this is we might be making a little bit of a mountain of molehill, molehill here. OK, but uh, it, it was a, a very, I think, easy decision for the commissioner to allow sort of the lead lawyer for Freedom Corp to come back into the commission. All right. Uh, your highlights, what stands out to you about the testimony today from Marco Mendicino? Uh, again, this seems to, uh, obviously yesterday, not enough to declare the Emergencies Act, but still recommended. How did uh, Mendicino back that up today? It was interesting, Scott. So Mendicino, in, in my point of view, has been one of the stronger witnesses in sort of allowing us to see the inner workings of the government's decision. He really painted a narrative, and this might just be his background. He is a a former Crown prosecutor, so sort of showing us the evidence is sort of in his wheelhouse. Um, but he definitely laid out the the maybe need for this, because one of the things he said was things were getting so raucous and the concerns around protests across the country, whether it's um, the the messages coming from people like Pat King and buying also guns being found in Alberta, and also the the evidence of guns being in and around Ottawa as well, and, and MPs being threatened, leaders being threatened. Um, 
Marco Montecino definitely painted a picture of how sort of unsafe and unruly Ottawa sort of was in this time and how tensions were very high. So out of concern of public safety, the need for Emergencies Act to sort of uh, enact laws and enact some of the criminal code issues that were being seen in Ottawa but weren't able to be acted on because of lack of resources at the police level. So um, we really got to see some of that with Mr. Mendicino's, um testimony today. And I think we're going to see that as the week goes on, as we hear from the cabinet ministers who are going to be coming up next. Do you get the feeling, and I know you can't editorialize on this stuff, but um, that the act was called not necessarily because of a threat to national security, but needed to clean up the mess when there was dysfunctional leadership that allowed it to get to the point where it was? I definitely think that's part of it. I, th- I think the mess that was there also, I, I think the, the guns and tone of violence uh, yeah. is a valid point here. And I think we also do have to consider the economic effects because one of the things the Emergencies Act noted was uh, in terms of the economy of the country and when you have the largest border crossing in the country being blocked for almost a week. I, I think that made a major factor in it as well. Kyle Benning with us, Network Digital Broadcast Journalist for Global News. Kyle, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too, Scott. And again, here we go, uh, less about national security threat and more about the dysfunctionality and the disorganization uh, and how this got to the point where after three weeks it was allowed to fester, 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 fester. Nobody did anything. And then, well, I guess we better call the fire department to put out this fire. Uh, I wonder how we got there. Those are the big questions, too. We certainly remember, I don't want to take you back here, but i, I got to set it up. Uh, late 2019, early 2020, a global pandemic started coming out of Wuhan, China. Uh, nobody knew anything about this. The Mad Dash was on to find a vaccination uh, for this virus and such. And over two and a half years, it appears we pretty much got a handle on it. Uh, the vast majority of those in, in uh, the industrialized world have been vaccinated. And uh, the Omicron variant, which spreads certainly... Uh, a lot easier has pretty much pushed the deadlier Delta variants uh, right out of the picture. So we have or trying to move on. China is literally still in lockdown in some parts of that country with their COVID zero policy. Why do they appear to be going backwards? Let's bring in Ofer Barron, Distinguished Professor of Operations Management, Academic Director, MMA Program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Ofer, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much for uh, having me. So far, so good. So uh, I guess this is because China has a COVID zero policy, but why have that if the rest of the world has moved on? So China tried to relax its zero COVID policy a couple of weeks ago or so. And uh, this caused uh, a significant increase in number of cases over there which kind of now uh, push them uh, back a little bit in terms of uh, trying to put uh, more quarantine uh, and so on. What is their vaccination rate? I'm not sure about it, uh, but it uh, varies significantly among different regions in China, right? This is a a huge country in the more modern quote-unquote cities, the vaccination rate was uh, higher, uh, but in rural areas and in uh, some of the uh, other huge cities, uh, as far as I know, there is a lower uh, rate of uh, vaccinated people. Also, 
some of the rumors are that the efficacy of this vaccination is not as good as some of the vaccines that we used uh, here, for example. Um, is it, do you think lack of vaccination is a part of this? Because it would seem in a controlling country that would be quite easy to do. Uh, you're suggesting the vaccine is not as good as others. With what this is costing China, are, are you surprised they haven't fixed this? Yeah, yeah this, this is certainly a good point. I think um, the policy of the Chinese government now is trying to uh, balance the economic activity with the prevalence of uh, COVID cases. Uh, one of the things that they have done in terms of fighting uh, COVID by but allowing some more uh, relaxed approach rather than the zero COVID approach is to try and uh, add more uh, beds to hospitals. Uh, and they're trying to manage it um, in a uh, with a multifaceted approach, which vaccines is a part of it, uh, you have to remember that still China has less cases than the U.S. daily, despite having a significantly larger population. Right, this is a five, six times the population of the U.S. and they have less cases, but they're certainly reacting to these cases uh, still much more harshly than um, we at the West uh, do. Uh, again, that should say something right there from the opposite point, and that is this virus, this this variant, is nowhere near as dangerous as what the previous ones were. And many here who are not vaccinated have just got it and had natural immunity. So why is that not working in China? Um, the natural immunity is because we were exposed and we were sick uh, to some extent. And I think because of the zero COVID, they may have uh, less progress on this uh, aspect. Also, just as a reminder, uh, we in Canada see uh, more and more uh, cases of respiratory illnesses, including COVID in the last uh, couple of weeks as well. So as much as I would like to uh, be able to say COVID is behind us here, I am not sure this is uh, this is uh, true. So we we still have the risk of suddenly having another wave and going back to you know uh, higher quarantine and isolations and, and mask mandates and so on. Right. That being said, Ofer, I have seen absolutely nothing about any kind of new variant on the horizon that suggests uh, it spreads more, but is 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 not as uh, dangerous as it has been in the past. So, yay, per capita, we may have way more cases than they, they do, but they're, it, it's not affecting people. It's not killing people anymore, and they're shutting down an economy. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think part of the reason is that uh, the relative uh, hospital capacity that we have is, uh, is higher than uh, is available in many places in uh, China. So they're having a, um, a a capacity issue within their hospitals, similar to what we are here in Canada, and the fact that uh, it's not necessarily the disease that's killing people. Um, we're doing this to protect the healthcare system. Uh, I think that's certainly part of the part of their considerations. So it announced reduction of the zero COVID policy uh, in, in the last few days or over a couple of weeks ago. Or so as I said, they 
did it in parallel to announcing grow, growing the number of hospital beds, especially that are available to take care of uh, respiratory illnesses. Uh, how, so my next question was, how do they fix that? Are they trying to add more capacity to hospitals? Because again, this is not a deadly disease that is crippling hospital systems. Uh, yeah, so the disease can be can be deadly. It is still deadly. It is not as deadly as some of the other variants, as, uh, as you said, but there's still a, a large, uh, not a large, but there's still a percentage of people who um, may... Uh, it's still a very that. small, no, there's still a small percentage of people who are very vulnerable that still could be, be in life and death situations. But this is not the global pandemic that it was a year and a half or two years ago. Right. And it seems that China just has not kept up with that. How is that, How what are they going to do to change that, do you think? And specifically around their economy, uh, because the superpower isn't, isn't outputting what it used to. Yeah, I, I think uh, this is something that uh, they should uh, take care of. And uh, especially as being part of a global supply chain and being also blamed for um, spreading this disease earlier, I think it seems as if the current policy tries to be on the better be safe than sorry side. Uh, I agree with you that it is not a... Uh, clear that the economic cost of such a decisions are uh, as uh, easily outweigh the restrictions that they are uh, putting on top of uh, uh, their population. Does this affect their credibility on the world stage, not being able to get a handle on this, considering many parts of the world are move, have moved on? I mean, we're living with it, but we've moved on. We're not crippled by it anymore. Um, so, I... It, I think you are a little optimistic about uh, how crippled by it we we are. Uh, much of the slowdown in the economy around the world is certainly a response to COVID. Some of it is a late response, but some of it is still a response to what's what's happening now. Uh, but I, I certainly agree with you that uh, China's credibility uh, as a a partner as an economical partner in many cases is being um, risked with uh, their uh, zero COVID or close to zero COVID policy. How long do you think this is going to continue over that they're going to be having these issues? Uh, I, I think this is a, this is a, a huge question. We, we were hoping that uh, COVID would be similar to SARS, right? That was kind of our initial predictions. It's clearly not the case. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned before is something that we should, should be worried about. The more this virus stays around, the more mutation it may be going through and it may find another kind of deadly um, uh, version. So the lengthening of the time in which we are exposed to this virus or, or, or flattening the curve, as we used to say, hmm. has this extra cost of giving the virus time to mutate again and possibly finding another variant that is more uh, deadly and Good infectious point. than others. So I hope nothing would this like this would come. And I, I certainly hope to see the entire world economy and the Chinese economy, which we are talking about in particular, uh, getting back to to its to the to their feet 
in in the next uh, quarter or six months. But I think this is maybe uh, quite optimistic given the last couple of years of experience we have. Oh, for Baron with us, distinguished professor of operations management, academic director, MMA program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. Ofer, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. Thank you. Have a good day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. He's here now. Good afternoon, Scott. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. I uh, want to talk about World Cup. Mm, sure, yes. So, uh, opening ceremonies, what have you, and there's always you know controversy around sport and such, uh, Olympics, whatever, FIFA, and uh, the the head of FIFA is sort of chastising people for bringing up these issues of human rights. I actually, used the word racist uh, at one point. My first thought is. Why host or go to a place like uh, Qatar that is so controversial rather than somewhere else? Why even jump into this hornet's nest? If I could do the sound effects for the beginning of Pink Floyd's money, you know, like I would do that right now. It's money. And and this is, you know, I was talking about this on the show last night that, thank you, there it is. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the same reason why the Olympics put an Olympics in Sochi, Russia. And why the Olympics put an Olympics in Beijing. And, you know, you are going, it doesn't matter what the socioeconomic or the geopolitical or whatever else, all the stuff that's going on, doesn't matter how crappy the leadership, if they're willing to fork out the big bucks. And the amazing part was it got lost in this hour-long amazing press conference that uh, the head of FIFA had where he said that he felt gay and he felt like a woman and he felt like all kinds... I mean, it was just... It was an amazing free-flowing thing that he was doing. Um, One of the things he said was he'd be open to having a World Cup in North Korea, which I'm like... And he says, well, if we feel we can change the world, why wouldn't we do... And I'm looking at this going, okay, Scott, so they say this about (laughs) Russia. They say this about, like, last World Cup or two World Cups ago in Brazil, and... We're going to change the world. We bring our, our our beautiful game, and it changes the world. Fine. Show me, then, what was the positive change that we can see retroactively or retrospectively from holding the Olympics in Russia? Did, did the holding the Olympics in Russia make that society better or, say, prevent them from invading Ukraine? Did, did hosting the Olympics in Beijing make that society freer or better for the Uyghur people, for example. Like, it's great to say we're going to go in there and change the world. It doesn't happen. It's a giant, easy thing to throw up there and go, oh, this is a lofty thing we're doing. We're doing this wonderful thing for the children of the world. Meanwhile, the children of that country are often starving. Um, I'll play devil's advocate here. Um, it may not change anything, but does it expose this to the rest of the world? And that's what the beautiful game is doing here. Well, maybe, uh, although I'm pretty sure that that's not what they're what I'm pretty sure that was not the plan. We're, they're not saying we're going to Qatar. You know why? Don't tell anyone, but we'll expose the stuff, the unseemly <laughs> stuff that nobody likes. No, they're, they, he is defending. He, in that press conference, he was essentially defending 
everything that happened there, and in fact saying, oh, and by the way, anything Europeans, anyone from Europe or in the West, uh, your countries have done bad things too, so you better shut up, or as you say, it's racist. I mean, it's, it is entirely about who is willing to fork out the most amount of money, and we don't care. It's the same reason that the golfers are playing on the live tour. Mm. We don't care, really. We'll say we care, but you want to pay me an upfront $50 million guaranteed? Ooh, you know, I can help the children of the world by playing and exposing and bringing the game to that. Like, come on. It's a load of crap. Does this hurt the credibility for FIFA? No, because FIFA has no credibility. Come on. Mm, FIFA, I mean, look, this is an organization that uh, under different leadership once upon a time, there was all kinds of problems with this. And, you know, maybe FIFA is cleaned up a little bit, but I don't think that anyone is looking at FIFA as the the beacon of goodness or, you know, um, whatever. I I don't think people are looking at FIFA as an organization that can put on a good golf, a good uh, soccer tournament. Uh, so does anything change as a result of this, either with the tournaments? You tell me. Do you, do you think that any of the people who are being kicked out of stadiums right now because they're wearing a, a rainbow wear or anything else, do you think any of the people or the fact that they can't drink beer, do you think any of this means that when the World Cup packs up its roving circus and leaves town in six weeks, do you think that Qatar is a changed country that says, you know, we've now been exposed to the beautiful game. Let's change everything we stand for because we now see the better way. I don't know. I think that beer issue you brought up, that might be a big one. All right, that's it. We're out of time. Uh, Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks, and have a great show. Thank you. And hey, uh, it is worth noting, though, Canada does play its first game tomorrow, so uh, I hate to say it, but all that other stuff, no one's going to care for at least a couple hours. Good point. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Do we have a last word? As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, it's Stan from Ancaster. Let's try to get along. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.